welcome to A Better Story Podcast. This will be the last episode before a holiday break, so I will see you in the new year with some new episodes. In the meantime, if you want to give me a gift for the holidays, you can leave me a review on iTunes or uh, whatever application you use for listening to podcasts. Super fast, super easy, and it would make me really happy. So today we are talking about another old story and a weird uh, but popular one. I really like the weird stories in scripture because they uh, they kind of shake things up. You got to wrestle with them. They tend to have a lot of layers and they go to some really kind of quirky, interesting places. So today's story uh, has to do with the holiday season. And I don't want to ruin the season for you with today's episode, uh, but there are some really weird parts of the Christmas story. Uh, to me, maybe the weirdest part is the virgin birth. Like, why did Mary need to be a virgin? What's the big deal other than it just being this sort of like novel, interesting fact? And then why have we or why have Christians made it into such a big deal? Because we have blown it up and made it into a huge deal. It's in the creeds. It's in most doctrinal statements. So it's somehow become this like core part of Christian belief. Uh, I think it's tied also to how we idolize virginity, not just in Mary, uh, but in really women in general, which has created some very twisted sexual norms in the church, uh, created a lot of sexual stigma, inhibition, and I think at its worst, emotional and sexual abuse. So let's look at this weird aspect of the story at Mary's virginity. Now, I don't actually want to look at her sex life because that's none of my business. We don't need another guy examining a woman's sex life. Hard pass on that one. But I want us to look at why her virginity is mentioned in the story and what it could be doing, because I think a lot of times we miss the point on this. If we make it just about the proposition of whether or not she was a literal virgin, if we just make it about her sex life, there's really not much there to gain. It's not particularly sacred because it basically just becomes about us being right or wrong about this proposition. But instead, if we ask, what is it doing in the story? What's being communicated here? All of a sudden, it may get way more interesting. Now, feel free to believe in a literal virgin birth. I'm actually not saying one way or the other what you should and shouldn't do on that. But what I am saying is Mary's actual virginity wasn't the point. And we could never prove that she was a virgin. In researching some of this, I found that scholars would build these sort of like elaborate arguments to try to prove that Mary really was a virgin. And they would make these kind of ridiculous statements and they'd say, if you believe this, then you believe this and this, therefore Mary was a virgin. And what it ended up with was this sort of like fragile house of cards that if one of these propositions fell apart, the whole thing would fall apart. Because we cannot prove whether or not she was a virgin, whether or not a 13 to 15-year-old girl, which is how old she probably would have been, was a virgin 2,000 years ago. But if we pick back up that metaphor of cards, that house of cards, cards weren't meant to build houses. They're meant to be played with, to have some fun with. So I want us to kind of play with this story, to see what it may or may not be doing. So I'm not going to land on any hard conclusions, but I want to give you some options for what could be going on. Specifically, I want to give you five different options. Before we get to those options, let me give you a little more background on the story that doesn't really fit anywhere else, but I think it's helpful and interesting. First thing, references to Mary's virginity are not in the earliest Christian writings. 
As far as Gospels go, Mark is generally considered the first Gospel written. There's no mention of it there. It doesn't come until Matthew and Luke, which were written later. Even in Paul's earliest writings, there's no mention of Mary's virginity. It doesn't pop up until later. So a lot of scholars think that it wasn't really like a commonly held thing till later on in the story. Second thing, there's no mention of it in the Hebrew scriptures. Now you may be thinking, what about that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14? That's really beautiful and quoted all the time. It talks about a virgin giving birth and his name will be called Emmanuel. Really wonderful passage. Well, not to ruin it for you, because it's still a beautiful passage, uh, but that's actually not about a virgin. The Hebrew word there doesn't mean virgin. It means a young woman. Basically, any young woman who uh, was of childbearing age, to put it bluntly, who had had her period, could be a virgin, maybe not a virgin, not the reference there. Second off, uh, there's actually no history of that passage being used to refer to any sort of like messianic hope. No one does that until Matthew does it in his gospel. So there's no history uh, in Hebrew thoughts of hoping for a virgin. Now, with that background, there's still some really interesting stuff going on in this story. So let me give you these sort of five potential options. First thing that this story could be, it could be a political challenge. In fact, I think it is a political challenge. There are so many stories in ancient thought and ancient mythology that borrow this motif of a divine human relationship, often with a virgin, and then out of that comes this sort of historic figure. One of the most popular ones, and one of the most important ones, was Caesar Augustus. I mentioned this on a previous episode. But Caesar Augustus was said to be the product of a divine human relationship. His mother, Atia, was said to be a human. His father, Apollo, was a god. And out of that comes Caesar Augustus, the head at this point in time of the Roman Empire. So by suggesting that Joseph wasn't Jesus's biological father, they're making a political statement. They're saying, oh, you know that other sort of divine miraculous birth over here? I've got a challenger. So it's setting Jesus up as an alternative to Caesar, as an alternative to understanding power and control what's important in the world. Now, there are all sorts of references beyond this to sort of the political ramifications, including the term Son of God. Uh, I mentioned those at length in an episode last year called Silent Night, Subversive Night, so you can go back and listen to that. But one thing the story is doing, I think, is acting as a political challenge to Rome. Second thing that it could be doing, that Mary's virginity in particular could be doing, I think it's acting as a cultural bridge, as a shared story. Like I said, there are tons and tons of other stories about divine virgin relationships in mythology. In particular, Zeus. Zeus was said to have had over a hundred children by human women, most of whom were virgins. Let me give you a quick rundown, just real fast. Going to throw a bunch of big names that I'm going to mispronounce at you. First one, I will not mispronounce. Alexander the Great was said to have been the product of Zeus and a woman, a virgin. And as you know, Alexander the Great went on to conquer most of what uh, world he knew of at that point, created a giant empire, huge historical figure, divine human relationship. Another one of Zeus's babies, Erichthonius, was the mythological king of Athens. He was the product of Gaia and either Zeus or another god, depending on which story you listen to. But he essentially was this sort of like huge mythological king that ruled over Athens in ancient mythology. Another one, 
Perseus, the product of Zeus and Danaea, ended up having a mythological empire as well, was known to sort of like slay these monsters, was said to be the greatest warrior until Hercules came along. Now one more, Dionysus. And I have mentioned Dionysus before. There are tons of similarities between Jesus and Dionysus that I've mentioned in other episodes. But Dionysus was the product of Zeus and Simile, another virgin. Dionysus was actually said to have had his womb in Zeus's thigh, so he becomes this sort of ultimate hybrid of human and divine creature. So lots of old stories about these divine-human, divine-virgin relationships, and they almost all go the same way. It's a god literally having sex or sometimes uh, even raping a mortal virgin woman. Now, there's a lot of offensive things to these stories, uh, and this actually ran against the sexual ethic of Second Temple Judaism, which is what Jesus would have grown up in. But a spiritual divine union, which is what Luke mentions, would have been okay. Additionally, while within this sort of Hebrew tradition, there was no sort of expectation of any divine virgin relationship, the term son of God pops up a lot. And so it could be kind of a play on that as well. So this story of Mary's virginity is not quite Jewish, but it's got some Jewish roots, and it's not quite fully Greek, but it's got some Greek roots as well. Now, stay with me here. If you've read the Christian scriptures, or what's often referred to as the New Testament, then you know that a lot of what they're doing is trying to get Jews and Gentiles to get along as they follow Jesus together. And so what this story of Mary's virginity maybe is a shared one, one that pulls a little bit on Greek history, a little bit on Jewish history, and becomes the shared image or shared story. Now, if you've ever spent a lot of time with someone who is different than you, who thinks different, who comes from a different background than you, then you know how important shared stories and shared images can be. They give us something to sort of hold in common. They help us relate to other people. They can even sort of create a family relationship, a kinship with other people. And so maybe the story of Mary's virginity is a cultural bridge, a shared story to bring these people together. Another option, Mary's virginity, I think, could be in part a theological statement. It could be trying to say, this is what God is like. And this actually has a lot to do with ancient genetic math. Specifically, what happens when you put together a God and a woman and what kind of baby comes out? Now, this is not scientific, obviously, uh, but as you heard from most of those stories, the thought was that these sort of divine human relationships would produce a very particular type of person, this sort of ultimate warrior, this ruler who would take on empires and armies and mythical creatures and conquer everything. It reflected the sort of strength of the God that helped create them. But with Jesus, you don't get that. Jesus is this product of divine human relationship, according to the story, but you get a very different sort of life. It almost reorients how God is powerful. So the story isn't literally about Mary's virginity. It's about what this community of early Jesus followers were saying about God and about Jesus. Specifically, what it looks like to be divinely connected to God. It doesn't look like having the biggest army. It doesn't look like being in control of having all the money and all the power and everything you could possibly want. With Jesus, it looks like valuing the parts of society that get pushed down. It looks like radical love for everyone around you. It reorients who we consider our neighbors, and it recenters divine love to the fringes of society. That's some pretty revolutionary stuff, even for today. Fourth option, 
It could be, and a lot of people think that the mention of Mary's virginity is a spiritual allegory. There's one more uh, virgin-divine relationship that is pretty well known, and it actually involves a figure from another holiday. That's Cupid. Cupid was the god of desire, and Cupid fell in love with Psyche, which is a familiar term. Literally just means like soul or essence of being. But Psyche was said to be a virgin who fell in love with Cupid. Psyche was a human. After they fall in love, she becomes pregnant with another divine kind of human baby. And then somewhere in there, she's banished to kind of wander the earth. And eventually, after a lot of hardship, she returns. She's gained a lot of wisdom and she gets to marry Cupid. It's a sort of allegory for what happens when our souls encounter love and go through hardship and come out on the other side. And so if we use that same sort of formula, if the story that Luke and Matthew are writing is maybe borrowing on this a little bit, then we find out that it could be about what happens when our souls or our beings or ourselves are entangled with divine love. When we endure hardship, that it can birth or bring about a new way of relating to each other and of being. And that that probably looks something like how Jesus lived. Last one, fifth way that this story of Mary's virginity could be acting. And this is maybe my favorite one. It takes a while to get to, so hang in there with me. That is that the mention of Mary's virginity is culturally and relationally subversive. In Luke's account of this sort of Christmas narrative, he has a divine messenger or an angel saying that the spirit is going to come upon Mary and she'll conceive Jesus. I kind of brush over that line usually, but it turns out that was actually incredibly controversial and a radical thing to say. And to see why, we got to get a little bit nerdy here for a second. So most of the Christian scriptures are written in Greek, but a lot of Jesus's earliest followers wouldn't have actually spoken Greek. Their first language would have been a Semitic language, which would have had different roots and different words. In the Semitic languages, that term for spirit that Luke uses is feminine. And this created a problem for some of the earliest Christians. In the Gospel of Philip, which was written in the second century, the writer argues that Jesus couldn't have been born of the Spirit, like Luke says, because two women can't make a baby, implying that it would mean that Jesus was the product of feminine relationships, of a feminine spirit and a physical woman coming together. Now, as you can see, the way that Christian history shook out Luke ended up winning the day, and in this story, Jesus is the product of spirit and Mary. It's almost this sort of subtle, unconscious nod that I think still resonates today. That Jesus, in some way, is the product of the divine feminine, the human feminine coming together. So for my LGBTQ friends heading into hard and contentious holidays this year, if you get any grief, or if you just want to maybe throw it out there, let your family know that baby Jesus would not have been born without same-sex love. So there you go. Five potential things that the virgin birth could be doing. Now, isn't that way more interesting than just Mary's sex life, which is none of our business anyway? I hope you found something that was life-giving, that was helpful, that was insightful, that maybe moved you a little bit for this holiday season. Take care of yourself. Talk to you next year. Bye.